humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug on AM 950 with Ellie 2.0 Radio, where I'm here to talk to you about idealism and idealists, but also if you are hearing a little lilt in my voice, a little extra high step in my presentation here, it is because I get to talk to you with President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris as names and titles that we can say finally. Oh my God. Ah, what is that that I feel? Is that called hope? <laughs> oh my God, I'll tell you. And you know how I found out that the election had been called. I was riding my bike on Saturday because it was one of the obviously last few great days. I was riding up Bryant Avenue in Minneapolis, South Bryant Avenue, and a woman came out of her house and started screaming from the top of her lungs. And she said, finally, finally, for five years, I've been waiting for this moment, finally. And she, that's all she said. And then she started screaming. <laughs> I said to myself, I think they just called the election. So, um, uh, you know, and then, of course, Saturday night, President-elect Biden gave this great speech. And he even mentioned transgender humans, my community. Now, of course, we must stay vigilant. Um, we have to see what transpires in the next several weeks um, with um, uh, uh, the Trump administration refusing to even concede the election. So stay vigilant. We have a great show today, okay? Our theme is about women who are idealists. The big interview is with one such idealist, Rachel Pilgrim, whose work on uncovering the identities of five black women who founded a black church in Mount Vernon, New York, was recently featured in the New York Times. So I'll she was kind enough to accept my email quickly, and so we're having her on the show. In, in, um, and, and, uh, in this, and then later on in the show on my C-Block, we'll talk about another female idealist. That would be me, Ellie Krug, and I'll share about a decision that I made that I had been wrestling with. But let me start with another woman, female idealist, and that would be Dr. Jill Biden, <laughs> who will soon become... The, the first lady on January 20th. You may wonder why I'd call Joe Biden an idealist. Well, give me a few minutes and I'll tell you why. You'll understand why. So here's the story about Dr. Jill Biden. In her 20s, um, she, well, she grew, up in, uh, she grew up in the Philadelphia area and had always, always made clear that she had wanted to have her own career. In her early 20s, um, after she had married in her early 20s, um, uh, she, had, she had opened a bar um, near the University of Delaware. It was called the Stone Balloon, and it turned out to be one of the most successful college bars in the United States at the time. She had Bruce Springsteen playing there, Tiny, T Tiny Tim, and other people. Um, and then she got divorced uh, in uh, 1974. And in early 1975, she was uh, set up on a blind date with Joe Biden. At the time, Joe Biden was a widower. He had lost his wife and his young daughter in a car accident. 
And at the time when they met, Joe Biden was 33 years old and, and Dr. Jill, what turned out to be Dr. Jill Biden, was 24 years old. Um, and uh, she ended up getting her master's degree and she started as a substitute. And she also, at the time, dating Biden, worked in his office. In 1977, Dr. Jill and Joe uh, were married at the Chapel of the United Nations. She was 26 at the time, he was 35. And Joe had proposed to her several times before she accepted. And as you may have heard her talk about that publicly, she understood that the, what the weight would come of having this instant family, and she did not know whether she was up to the task. However, they get married, and Dr. Jill continued to teach in the public schools. She got pregnant, then she was out for a couple of years, and then she went back. She got her master's degree a month before their, the daughter that she had with Joe, her name is Ashley, was born. Um, then, um, after, after Ashley was born, uh, Dr. Jill went out and got a second master's in uh, fine arts. So, master's of fine arts as a writer from Villanova University. And then Dr. Jill did this thing, okay? Now, you've got to understand, she is, at that point, the wife of a United States senator. She's got every cachet that she could ever want. And then what she does instead is she goes and starts teaching English at public schools. She does that for 13 years. That includes teaching at a school for troubled youth, teaching English. Um, and, and then she goes on and starts teaching at community colleges. Now, again... The wife of a senator with fantastic cachet, any door that she wanted could open, and yet she goes to a community college. And the reason that she goes to community college, now remember, I told you, I'd tell you, I'd explain why Dr. Jill is an idealist. And the reason that she gave for teaching at community colleges is this. This is a quote from her. Quote, I feel like I can make a greater difference in their lives at community colleges. I just love that population. It just feels really comfortable to me. I love the women who are coming back to school and getting their degrees because they're so focused, unquote. Community colleges, that is the only place Dr. Jill has taught other than in public high school. Um, she, uh, she has also founded another, a number of nonprofits, um, including Book Buddies, um, which is about helping literacy for younger kids, which is something dear to my heart. And then the Delaware Boots on the Ground, which is about supporting military families. In addition to everything I've told you, Dr. Jill runs five miles <laughs> every day, five times a week. Uh, she's run in one marathon and one half marathon. In 2007, the reason we get to call her Dr. Jill is 2007. So she is at that point 56 years old. She went back to get her PhD in education at the University of Delaware. And while she was getting her PhD, she studied under the name of Jill Jacobs because she didn't, she didn't want to know, be known as Joe Biden's wife. Her dissertation was titled Student Retention at the Community College, colon, Meeting Students' Needs. Again, unbelievable. Joe Biden runs for president in 2008 um, on his own and then um, as Obama's VP. And Joe Biden continues to teach during the week and then um, campaigned over the long weekends and graded class papers on the campaign bus. 
Her name, her preference is to be referred to as Dr. Jill Biden, as rightly so. Um, as first lady, once Joe Biden was vice president, she continued to teach at community college. Um, by 2011, so in the middle of uh, the uh, Obama-Biden uh, uh, administration, by 2011, she's teaching three classes, two days a week. And she continued to downplay her connection to Joe Biden, saying that she was, quote, just one of his relatives, unquote. <laughs> I love that. And when she had perks from her status as the uh, first, as the first lady of the vice president um, during the Obama administration, she gave those perks to people at her college and in the administration office. And when she needed time off to go do things for the campaign for the administration, she actually went through the, the administration and asked for permission for time off. In 2012, she published a children's book on top of everything else that I've told you, children's book titled, quote, Don't Forget, God Bless Our Troops. Um, she's really not big on politics or on public speaking, but when called upon, she will do that. And according to Wikipedia, um, uh, and this surprised me, she was disappointed when Joe announced in October 2015 that he would not run for president. She was disappointed. She wanted him to run. And I had thought that she was, I had thought that she was one of the reasons why he did not want to run. Um, uh, eventually, among other things, uh, Dr. Jill was named the board chair for Save the Children. Again, showing her, literally, her idealism. And, but all that I've told you, this is all behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, people are having to tease this out of her because all— but, because she wants to show up in the classroom and influence and talk and teach young humans and young minds. My God, talk about walking the walk. This is Dr. Jill. This is, this is our new first lady. Wow. <laughs> and she has said once, uh, uh, Joe ascends to the formal presidency on January 20th. Dr. Jill has said she plans to go back to teaching. Her big problem is trying to get the Secret Service to look um, fairly nondescript <laughs> so that it doesn't freak out the students. Dr. Jill Biden, idealist. I hope I made you smile as I was giving you this report because it makes me smile to know not only do we have an idealistic president, but we have a very idealistic first lady who's been walking the walk. Wow. Okay, there you go. All right, we're going to take a break. I'm going to come back with Rachel Pilgrim with this incredible story about researching five black women lost to history who founded a church in Mount Vernon, the largest church in, in Westchester County, New York. Um, you'll find it fascinating. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug. Thanks. We'll be back in a second. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out reusebfm.com. 
This is a great way to see what we carry in the reuse warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out ReuseBFM.com. That's ReuseBFM, as in Better Futures Minnesota, .com. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. We're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 radio. So, Dr. Jill Biden, read up on her. All it takes is a little, you know, Googling on Wikipedia, but you will be tremendously impressed. And oh, my goodness. Oh, all right. Okay. So she is one woman, female idealist. And now we're going to move on to the big interview with another woman, female idealist. I have on the line with me Rachel Pilgrim, who is the author of a study of how of of trying to find the the founders of a black church in Mount Vernon, New York. Rachel, are you there with me? Yes, hi Ellie. Hi Rachel, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. I am absolutely I'm ecstatic to have you here as my interview guest for the big interview. And let me just kind of give a little bit of the background. So I discovered found out about you because I'm a advocate a reader of the New York Times and their race related section highlighted a, a study that you did, an investigation you did of five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888, but their, but their names had been lost to history. And you are a, uh, you're a journalism uh, student at Columbia working on your master's. Do I have that right? I just graduated in May. You just graduated? Oh, forget it. Okay, you graduated. Congratulations. Okay. All right, congratulations. All right, so bring us up to date. Tell us, how did you get involved with this? What was your investigation about, and what did you find? Cool. So I had moved to Mount Vernon when I was six years old, but my family had always gone to Grace Baptist Church. And I had, when I, I guess, began reading, (laughs) started reading, I ended up just reading church bulletins. You know, when you're a kid, you're sitting in church, kind of swinging your feet, twiddling your thumbs while everybody's, you know, churching it up. And I would always read the church history on the back of the programs, the bulletins. And it would always say the church was founded by five women of grace um, with tremendous faith. And they'd never named them. But as I grew up, I found that Grace Baptist Church was a huge pillar in the Mount Vernon community. And we were a part of so many positive movements in a predominantly African-American community in the middle of Westchester, which is usually white, predominantly white. So I, at a certain point, had started to realize that we needed to name them. We needed to name their vision and really just give them back their legacy. So I got to Columbia and we had to do 
these pitch sessions, huge pitch sessions for our master's projects. And they were kind of like, pick something that you're passionate about, but would also serve people around you. And automatically, I said to myself, I've been asking the same question since I was six. Who are these five women <laughs> who founded my church? <laughs> so basically, it was a tumultuous search. For 122 days, I spent my time going through archives um, from newspapers to census reports to people's handwritten meeting notes and journals. Rachel, Rachel, let me uh, interrupt here, okay, just for a second, Mm -hmm. because I want to help paint a little bit further picture. So Grace Baptist Mm -hmm. Church that these five women founded in 1888 um, happens to be what the— is it the, it's the largest church in Westchester County. Do I have yeah, that right? It's the largest, yeah. Okay, so Westchester County, you know, very affluent, but it also has it also has other um, aspects to it in terms on, on the economic scale. And so it's right. got 3,000 members, largest church. And, and for, what, two decades you're going to this church reading about the five founders who are never named. And you, that, that stayed with you all of that time. And this was the thing that you focused on for your master's thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it must have really stuck with you. All right. So you start going through archives to try and figure out who these five women were. Go ahead. So it was really hard. I was up against racism, sexism, literacy, so many just... It could have been oral tradition, really. It could have been a story that people just said, and there was no factual basis to it. About the five women. And, yeah, about the five women. These okay. five women possibly could not have existed at all. So I found myself in a space where I was better understanding my blackness when it came to historical context. And then on top of that, I was trying to examine a very small black community at the time back in the late 1800s that was living in Mount Vernon. So it meant I also had to understand why things changed. And so, um, yeah, it, be, it was really, it was a really intense search. I ended up settling on five candidates who I'm really, really attached to at this point. So I'm praying that I am right. Um, but their names are Emily Waller, Matilda Brooks, Helen Claiborne, Sahar Bennett, and Elizabeth Benson. Well, and and I am thrilled that you you have at least to a reasonable degree of journalistic certainty figured out they are the five women. But can mm-hmm. we go back and can we paint the picture of what it was like in mm-hmm. Mount Vernon, New York in the late 1800s? First of all, we have a society and I, I, and I don't think today that we understand this. We had a society that was still dealing with the vestiges of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And how, how did, so, what did you find out about that? So um, when I spent time with the genealogist at my church, Grace, she and I had to better understand just the time period, about 25 give or take, five years ago in 1865, of course, it was the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. um, Which would, by word, I guess, free slaves. But as history would tell it, many people know this by now, too, 
many slaves wouldn't find out they were free until many years later, which is why many black people celebrate Juneteenth. So, um, unfortunately, I was in a space where I had to understand that many of these people could have been illiterate, which is why they did not write down their stories. Right. And so it also would have meant that if they were former slaves, which is a part of the founding story that Grace always told, that these women were possibly formerly enslaved, then the chances of them being illiterate skyrocketed. Right. Then on top of that, moving to a predominantly white city, no matter how progressive it was, there was also going to be a chance that, you know, people didn't write down things for them either. Because at that time, how would you expect anyone to really care what black people were doing, unfortunately? Right. They wouldn't think that it was so, important. Okay, Rachel. Exactly. Uh, all right. So, Rachel, I've got to stop you because we've got to take a break. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but when we come back, I want you to continue to talk about what you found out about that period, because mm. what, what you did find was that a white church helped, you know, helped these five women. But then there were some mm -hmm. other things that went with it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, that's great. Rachel, we've been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim, who is the author of a study about five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888, appeared in the New York Times. Uh, when we come back, we'll do more of uh, what Rachel, we'll learn more about what Rachel found. If you like this show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We will be back in a minute. Thanks. Hi. Alex of Better Futures Minnesota. Does your business or organization need janitorial services, lawn care, or snow services? Obtain a free, no obligation estimate from Better Futures Minnesota when you mention that you heard about us on AM950. Our supervised, hardworking, and affordable crews will handle your interior and exterior building and property maintenance needs while you help men in your community transform their lives and walk on a positive path to success. It's a win-win. To learn more, go to BetterFuturesMinnesota.com under Business Services. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. We're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Before we took our break, we had we had been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim uh, from New York, who uh, is part of her, getting her master's degree at the Columbia School of Journalism, wrote a thesis about investigating and finding uh, five black women who had founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York. And Rachel, before we took our break, we started to introduce the idea or the what one of your findings, which was that it was a it was a couple of women and maybe a man at a white church in Mount Vernon mm -hmm. who sort of took these five women under their wing, for lack of a better phrase, and helped them mm -hmm. get get their black church established. Is that do I have that correct? Yes. Okay. You're totally right. All right. But then what did you find out about how that relationship went between the white church and then 
the newly established black church? So obviously like there were strings attached, right? They weren't going to help them. They weren't going to help the five women just because they could out of charity, right? There would end up being a lot of um, nuances that came with helping them found it. So the there was a white socialite by the name of Martha Wilson who ended up having a piece of land and she was connected to First Baptist Church loosely through friends in her neighborhood. She ended up donating this piece of land to Grace Baptist Church in trust. Okay, so and, she's donating the land to the five women to the black church that's been created in mm-hmm. trust. Okay, go ahead. Which means it's a gift, right? Yep. So, <clears throat> unfortunately, the white church that was responsible for undertaking this mission did not let these members know. And they ended up charging them rent on this piece of land so that they can hold their church services. So the black, Obviously, the white church is illegal. Okay. The white church is charging the black church rent on land that actually the black church really owned. Right. Yeah. It okay. was their land. <laughs> and they ended up charging them rent. Um, something I don't think I mentioned in my thesis was that there was a lot of instances of, this church locking the doors to the small chapel because they would be behind on rent or they somehow didn't have the right to hold a funeral there or somehow they didn't have the right to have like a choir practice, something like that. All of a sudden these members, particularly the ones that actually helped them would go and lock the doors to the small chapel so they would never really have full ownership to their land until um, the third pastor who comes along says, hey, I found the deed. And it says interest. And from what I understand, this means that this land is ours. You can't keep charging us rent. Of course, that didn't go over well. And there was a lot of physical conflict between the deacons and the pastors and many of the ministries between the two churches. So, and, and in fact, the, the, the pastor of the black church who, who said, I've, un- I've discovered that you, you have been cheating us for all these years, white church. In fact, the black pastor got beaten up. I mean, he was assaulted by members of the white church. Do I have that right? Yes. And he ended up suing them for personal damages, as well as suing them for basically all the rent that they had been paying the church. And he was awarded a small amount of change. I believe the numbers were like for personal damages on his part, on his person, it was 25000 And on behalf of the church, he sued for another ten. He didn't get more than I want to say, like ten thousand in total. Right, but this is the yeah. But let's make sure that we, um, our listeners, understand the point. It's a black man. He's a pastor in early the early nineteen mm-hmm. hundreds. Now, early nineteen hundreds in New York, he sues white people for mm-hmm. physically harming him and for the wrongs that they had done to the church, to the black church. And he he, win, he doesn't win everything he wants, but he wins some money, right? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so that, I mean, I think that's an interesting historical footnote. <laughs> yes, it is. There's a lot of li- just little notes that I would love to make in my thesis, hopefully in a book someday, <laughs> hey. about all the things that I want to put in that just make this church's founding story so much more interesting well, than it already is. Well, and so will you talk about the concept of erasure, please? That's a phrase that's prominent in your, in your dissertation and in the New York mm-hmm. Times story. Tell us what is erasure and why is it so important here? So really the concept of erasure, especially as it pertains to black people and black women, is really just the overshadowing of their legacies and their real promise and the things that we are capable of. And it's just overshadowed by not just white people, but just society and moments in history that people would deem even more important. And so we find ourselves often left as a subtext of history, where it's just like we're mentioned as little footnotes, when in reality we have accomplished much more than a footnote can allow. Right. Well, and we have some, of course, we have like Harriet Tubman, some, some figures um, in America that, that were able to escape er- erasure and were able to, to show up. And, and, we're right. hear- and we're hearing this in the election that we just had, you know? I mean, Stacey Abrams, right. my God. But, but right. Stacey Abrams' work, you know, was empowered by millions of black women, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and even right. now we're hearing, don't forget who those women are, right? Right. And it was a concept that came up in 2016 as well when people realized that black women had really turned out the vote when it came time to vote for Hillary Clinton. And people had framed it as, a, as this idea of us trying to save American democracy. When in reality, we're trying to save ourselves and you're benefiting from us saving ourselves, <laughs> you know, and that's right. really what erasure is, right? Like you, right. you erase not just what the person did, but the intention behind it, you know, and so black women will find themselves really being the big, biggest drivers of a movement and people end up reaping the benefits of what they've sowed. Well, and I want to, we've got just a few minutes left. I want to just go back mm-hmm. to the five women, Emily Waller, mm-hmm. Matilda Brooks, Helen Claiborne, Sahar Bennett, and Elizabeth Benson. You concluded that they were between 25 and 40 years old when they founded this church. Mm-hmm. Can we think of the courage that they had and the persistence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in a... Um, maybe all of them were formerly enslaved people. Um, certainly they had enslaved people in their family. They were in a white society. Mm-hmm. And and five of them persisted, right? Mm-hmm. And they did this. Uh, it, it's amazing. Absolutely. And I'm so happy we can return their names to their legacy. Well, and they, and they were idealists, right? I mean, they were, they were people right. who wanted to change the world. Right. All right, so that brings me then to you, okay? <laughs> I told you that you'd get this question because everyone on, with the big interview on LE 2.0 does get it. Mm-hmm. So, Rachel, what made you an idealist? 
What made you decide, <laughs> you know, that this would be the story versus you could have done something else <clears throat> for your thesis? And, and obviously, the whole experience that you've had now, I mean, you've even said this in the show, you know, makes you want to write a book about the church, the founding, and I have a sense that you want to do other things. So what made you so idealistic? I would say I came out the womb this way. Really growing up into your blackness in America, you're born tired and you're born fighting teams that you didn't know existed before your first breath. So really many of the most valuable lessons about life were the ones that I was never taught, but the ones that I witnessed just in the nuances of navigating this like patchwork of race womanhood and intersectionality and it was without a word so i'd say idealism came with the skin color (laughs) 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 oh my goodness you know um we're on the uh we're on the other side of the election you know Mm -hmm. we have our first um uh vice president who's female (laughs) and first vice president who is a woman of color Mm-hmm. And, and I'm hearing you, and I just want you to know this, okay? You just gave mm-hmm. me an added shot of hope for our country. Mm-hmm. You just oh, did. that's great. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited for what the next four years would not just, with not just having um, Kamala Harris as VP, but really the amount of women that are about to come out the woodwork that have been doing the work, the groundwork, and getting their flowers and being alive to smell them. Right. Well, Exciting. right. And you, and you are one of those women. You are. Thank you. So what's next? So you've got your degree from uh, Columbia, uh, master's in journalism. Are you going on and getting your mm-hmm. PhD? <laughs> you know, I've thought about it, but right now I'm just going to keep working, keep freelancing, and really I have a few projects that will be coming out in 2021 that I'm excited about. Okay. And hopefully, you know, a PhD will come my way at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So if people want to read up on the, on the, the Five Women Project, okay, about the church, mm-hmm. where can they go to read up about it and maybe learn also more about you? Cool. So you can visit the website. That was also tagged at the bottom of the New York Times feature, but it's the five women of com, where you can check out the photos, um, any type of resources that I use during my search. You get a chance to even order my thesis through that website as well. Right, which is free, right? <laughs> Everything's free, yes. Yeah. All okay. the information is free. And they can also just Google your name, Rachel Pilgrim, right? Yeah, Rachel, I'd probably show up better with Rachel J. Pilgrim. But yeah, either or, and you can find everything that I've pretty much done at this point. <laughs> All right. Well, Rachel, um, I have so enjoyed having you on LE 2.0 Radio. And I just want to thank you for your time and your willingness to be on the show. But most of all, I want to applaud you. Okay? I want, I want to let you know I am thankful for you. I'm thankful for your hard work and your persistence. And I am thankful that you are part of our future. 
Okay. All right. Well, thanks so very much. All right, listeners, uh, we've been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim, uh, who is the founder and the writer of this wonderful thesis about five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888. Go check her out. Check out her website and the story. It is a wonderful story of America and of idealism. Okay, when we come back from our break, um, we'll pick up on my C-block and we'll talk about me, another woman who's an idealist, and things that Mm -hmm. I've tumbled to since the election. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out reusebfm.com. This is a great way to see what we carry in the reuse warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out ReuseBFM.com. That's ReuseBFM, as in Better Futures Minnesota.com. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio, Ellie Krug on AM 950. Okay, Rachel Pilgrim, I don't know about you, but I mean, I just, I was bursting as I was talking to her, bursting with with optimism and hope and just, just, just loving that woman and, and what she has done. And oh my God, the promise. And do you know, there are millions of young Americans with that kind of promise right now. There are. We need to enable them. We need, we need to do everything we can to allow them to show up and, and give us their voices. We do. All right, here's my C block. This is where me, 63-year-old, soon-to-be 64-year-old woman who happens to be transgender shows up. So um, I want to talk about three things today. First, uh, certainly I want to talk about the election of Joe. Joe Biden has given me great, great hope. I am able to breathe now, finally, after four years of holding my breath, and I know that I am not at all alone in that. I, I you know, I, I, I slept... I didn't sleep necessarily all that good on Saturday night, but let me tell you, I slept good on Sunday night, last night. I slept great. I did. As if this whole weight has been lifted off of me. Now, we're not there in the clear yet. We've got to get to the inauguration. There's a lot that can happen. We know that. And we just have to be vigilant. We do. That was the first thing. Here's the second thing. The second thing is, for several months, 
I've been considering moving back to Iowa, where I grew up and where I had a law practice. I am an Iowan at heart. I still have my 319 area code phone number. I will never, ever give that up. Uh, my sister lives in Iowa, so I have family. I have a dear couple of dear friends in Iowa. And I have been, for a number of months, um, wrestling with the idea that maybe I'm going to move back to Iowa, in part because um, uh, transgender people are much less visible in Iowa. The state is uh, farther behind on, on being progressive in a variety of ways. It's also um, a state that's very much more controlled by religious conservatives. So I thought, well, the idealist in me, <clears throat> maybe I'll go back and, and do work in Iowa. But I wanted to wait till the election happened. And frankly, the election results in Iowa have scared the heck out of me. They picked up six seats in the Iowa legislature. Um, uh, Joni Ernst, despite Joni Ernst being tone deaf, who is a senator in Iowa, she was reelected um, in her Democratic. I mean, there was a 15 point spread between her and her Democratic candidate um, uh, uh, who who put on a really great campaign, Teresa Green, Greenwell, Greenwall. Um, I got the last name wrong, but at any rate. And so Iowa is so red and it is so conservative at this point. I cannot go back. I don't know that it would be safe for me, frankly, to go back, physically safe for me to go back. So uh, second thing I'm telling you is I'm in Minnesota and it looks like for good. So third thing. Um, another thing I've been wrestling about and wrestling with <clears throat> was, um, frankly, considering running for political office. Um, I have great ideas. I do. If you go to my website at elliekrug.com and you go to the projects page, you'll see my great ideas. But I have no platform. I have no megaphone of any type. I'm just this, yes, I've got 9,000 people who read my newsletter, but... I have really no clout. Yesterday, I spoke to a very, very wise advisor about this, with specifically one position in mind, which I'm not going to identify. Um, and my very wise advisor started asking me some really, really critical questions. And as I was uh, pondering those questions and answering them, I had this feeling in my gut. And at 63, I've learned uh, your gut does speak to you. And I've learned it is really important to listen to your gut. And my gut was telling me, <clears throat> you don't have it in you, Ellie. You just don't. At 63, you got to be super, super passionate about running for office. And I'm not. I am super, super passionate about changing the world. But I am, it's clear, I don't have the passion that it would take or the resolve, you know, or the patience, you know, and, and or the desire to raise money, money, money. I don't, I, I just don't, it's clear I don't want to do that. And so as I was having this conversation yesterday with my advisor, the one thing that my gut also said to me was, stick with what you are good at, Ellie. Stick with what you know. 
I am good at inspiring people. That is partly why I thought about politics. But boy, you know, the way that I inspire people is that I show up authentically without asking them to do anything other than to have a more open mind about the world and about people who are different or other. If I got into the political realm, it would be I'm like asking for your vote. And I think that that would take away from my message. I don't want to demean people who are in politics. They're very important folks. They're very important endeavors. But for me, Ellie Krug, for what I'm trying to do in this world, I think that I just need to stick with what I have been doing and what I know. And that is showing up in rooms or online, talking to humans about what we have in common, surviving the human condition, and how it is that we can use compassion and empathy and understanding to be better to each other. So, I made that decision. You won't see my name on any electrical, electric, electric, <laughs> electoral marquees. Okay, so there you go. Reaffirming my idealism, reaffirming my course, reaffirming what I'm going to do. Okay, that's another great show. I hope you think it's great. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson, who time and again and again is there for me making this show sound good. And a big thanks to my sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota, which gives people a second chance. It is an organization filled with idealists. And you, my listeners, thank you. Thank you for showing up every week. Thank you for caring about me. Email me at lejkrug at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. And do me this favor. In this week with great hope, go out and make the world better. Thanks. Talk to you next week.